All right, so this week we took a look at Romans 10. Um, we moved from last week's study of God's divine sovereignty to Israel's present rejection. Um, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll just take it apart a little bit. Heavenly Father, thank you, um, first of all, for your word that teaches us, Lord, so that we can know you in a deeper and more intimate way, Father. Um, thank you for what you're teaching me, first and foremost, as I study your word, Lord, so I can share a little bit more of what you revealed through that study time, Father. And Lord, thank you for each lady that's here, and we pray a special blessing on them. We pray you would open their ears to hear what you want them to hear today, Father God. And um, Lord, I pray for those who couldn't make it as well, Lord, that they would receive a blessing and that you would speak to them and inspire them, Lord, to even though they couldn't come, to just study and spend that time with you, Lord. So we just commit this time to you. I ask, Lord, that you would just fill me with your spirit, Lord, and help me to speak the message that you want us to hear today. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Hi, Rhonda. We see you. (laughs) All right. So Romans 10, if you want to follow along, you're welcome. Otherwise, I'm just going to kind of read scripture along the way and and break it apart. Romans 10, 1 started out, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Um, I just love the way Paul is opening up his letter. He's an emotional guy. He's Last time I taught, he was groaning, and now he's just praying and, and sharing his heart's desire with us. So he's an emotional guy. Um, him bearing his soul also helps us to see God's heart. God's heart for us is that we would be saved. We also see in this first verse that Paul is a man of action. It's his heart's desire, and so he prays. And I think that is um, something that we need to know. There's our first life application right there. Do any of us have a desire that people be saved. Maybe our children, maybe our family, our friends, our neighbors, our spouse. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If all I got from this week was a reminder to keep my heart's desires going up to God in prayer, this would be a great study because we're always going to have those things that are on our heart and we need to know what to do with them and it's take it to the Lord in prayer. That direction can take us so far in the struggles of this life. Prayer connects us with the heart of God. He hears us. I don't know if any of you were here for Tanner's message on Sunday, but Tanner talked about um, sometimes that response from God can be delayed, but he hears us immediately. If you aren't praying for people to be saved, maybe we need to also look at this first verse and realize from Paul's example that we should be. We should be praying that people would be saved. Let's contemplate that for a minute. Who do you know that needs to be saved? Awesome. We all probably have somebody, and it's important that we don't give up praying. We, um, I'll share it with you that right now our ladies' prayer team is very small, little handful of us. And one night, um, one of the prayer warriors decided, we all know someone that needs to be saved, and so let's commit to just praying for them, not just here on our every other Thursday, but even at home in our prayer time, because we want a testimony. We want to bring them to salvation. So we do. We pray for those same people week after week, and even in our own prayer time. We want to see God move on their behalf, and we want to celebrate the answer to prayer. So we just keep praying. And so that's another beautiful thing we've added to our ladies' prayer, is that those certain people that need salvation, we just keep praying together. And I can't wait to celebrate together, too, as God does the work. All right, moving on to Romans 2. 
For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Do we all know someone who's zealous, but not according to knowledge? I don't know. As I read this and contemplated it, I thought about my little, my younger children. They're always zealous about something, especially my little Connie right now. She loves to help me in the kitchen. She loves to help me cook. She has a great zeal to be helpful, but it's not always helpful because she doesn't have the knowledge. You know, the kids washing the dishes. Sometimes I have to go, should I wash this again? I probably should because they don't have the knowledge to understand. It needs to be thorough. It needs to be complete. It needs to be hot water, kids. So, yeah, when I'm um, cooking with my Connie, it's up to me to teach her that knowledge. But for now, she just makes a mess, dropping eggs, stirring my dry mixture so hard that a third of it flies off the counter. So I have to be patient as God is patient with us. It also makes me think of Paul before his conversion. In Philippians 3, 4 through 6, Paul told us of the zeal that he had in the flesh, circumcised on the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee persecuting the church. By the law, he was blameless but not righteous. He was made righteous by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Even today, many people in churches are zealous about good work or religious duty that they think is going to save them, but not so much about their relationship with Christ. We can have plenty of zeal, but little knowledge. Paul told us back in Romans 3.20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So we need to make sure that we are zealous about, we are zealous with knowledge. How do we get that knowledge? We need to know God. We need to study his word. We need to come and have fellowship. We need to grow in our faith. That's where the right knowledge comes from. And so it's good to be excited and zealous, but we also have to follow it up with that knowledge. Verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Here he's talking about Israel. Israel had a lack of knowledge. But that wasn't their only problem. They also had a moral problem. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. People cannot come to Jesus without the right information about the gospel. But information alone is not enough to save anyone. There needs to be radical submission to the righteousness of God, putting away our own righteousness. And again, we need to take personal responsibility. All of Paul's teachings of God's election and right to sovereign choice has not diminished man's responsibility. Israel had many opportunities to be saved, but instead they chose to be ignorant. It was an ignorance that stemmed from willful, stubborn resistance to the truth. Do we know people sometimes that maybe we bring them to church and they sit in church and they hear the word, but they're just willful and stubbornly resistant to the truth? They were instead proud of their own works and their religious self-righteousness and would not admit their sins and trust their savior. This was the way to salvation. And yet they wanted to get it through their own works and through their religious um, rituals. And that may have been one of some of us at some point. I mean, we all probably know someone that think they're righteous because of whatever. She's a nice person. Haven't y'all heard that? Well, God can't send them to hell because they're a nice person or look at all the nice things they do. But yet God's word clearly says that's not what gets us into heaven. And so we need to make sure that we all have taken that personal responsibility and made sure that we are right with the Lord, that we have asked him to be our personal savior because that's what makes us righteous. Verse 4 tells us, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I'm going to keep reading here from verse 
4 to 8. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Jesus is the end of the law for those who believe. The law ends for the believer in the sense that our obedience to the law is no longer the basis for our relationship with God. The law has not come to an end in the sense of no longer reflecting God's standard or no longer showing us our need for a savior. Christ did not come to make the law milder or to render it possible for our cracked and battered obedience to be accepted as a sort of compromise. This is a little quote from Spurgeon. So I'm going to read that one more time. Christ did not come to make the law milder or to render it possible for our cracked and battered obedience to be accepted as as a sort of compromise. The law is not compelled to lower its terms as though it had originally asked too much. It is holy and just and good and ought not to be altered in one jot or little, nor can it be. Our Lord gives the law all it requires, not a part, for that would be an admission that it might justly have been content with less at first. That's from Spurgeon talking about the law. The law of Moses makes the path to righteousness through the law plain. If you want to live by the law, find life through the law, then you must do the law and do it completely and perfectly. And we've talked about that in our other studies, that no one can live completely and perfectly by the law. And that is why Jesus came to um, offer us salvation. He, he completed the law. He gave us salvation so that we no longer have to live according to it. Not that it's diminished. I mean, we should you know, do those things that God calls us to do, but we need to know that that's not how we get to heaven by following the law. The righteousness of faith is based on Jesus, and we don't have to work to get Jesus. It's not as if we have to ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss to gain Jesus. We believe and we receive. God has made it very simple for us. In a commentary by Warren Wearsby, he stated that the Jews misunderstood their own law Everything about their Jewish religion was to point them to the Messiah, their sacrifices, their temple services, their religious festivals and covenants. Their law told them they were sinners in need of a savior, yet instead of letting the law bring them to Christ, they worshiped their law and rejected their Messiah. The law, But wouldn't we do the same? Let's say Jesus came today. I mean, we are so prideful and stubborn and ignorant that we might even miss him too. So I don't necessarily fault them, but I am glad that that he provided the way and that we can see it differently with our eyes open. God has opened them for us to see and made it plain for us. Christ is the end of the law in a sense that through his death and resurrection, he's terminated the ministry of the law for those who believe. The law is ended as far as Christians are concerned. The righteousness of the law is being fulfilled in the life of the believer through the power of the spirit. We learned in Romans 8, 4. But the reign of the law has ended. Romans 6.14 told us, For you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Thank you, Lord. Verse 9 is one that many memorize in children's church. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I Sorry, I typed that up twice. Reading the verses in the study this week brought back a good memory. Um, oh, yeah, just with the, okay. So confess with your mouth and believe with your heart. Uh, it brought back a memory of my dad. Um, my dad, who's now saved, 
hasn't been safe for very long. Um, there was a time, I remember when Keanu was probably seven, and we were right in town out to dinner with him, and I think I was talking to my dad about his need to be saved, and he's like, yeah, I, I guess I should. You know, one day I'm going to die, and I guess I should believe in God. And I said, Dad, it's not like that. It's not like life insurance. You can't just believe because that you want to have this backup plan. It's it's a belief with your heart, you know. And Kiana says, please, Grandpa, you need to be saved because we don't want you to burn in the pit of hell. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Well, out of the mouth of babes, you know, that was her heart. We don't want Grandpa to burn in hell. And so um, throughout the years, my husband had taken him to, like, men's crusades and different things. And he had shared with me that he'd gone to those things. And in his seat, he'd kind of said the prayer in his heart, the sinner's prayer. But he never walked up. He just thought, no, I'm good. I said it in my head. But he said he never felt different. And one year, we got him a Billy Graham book for Christmas. I forget which one it was. But Billy Graham, in that book, it was like a How to Be Saved book by Billy Graham, Um, Billy Graham quoted that verse, and it totally spoke to my dad. My dad realized that he would believed in his own heart, but he hadn't yet spoken it with his mouth. And for whatever reason, God just, like, whammed him with that. Like, you haven't spoken it with your mouth. And so right there and then, my dad, after reading that book, just opened his mouth out loud and confessed his belief and his need for a Savior. And according to my dad, that's when he felt he was truly saved. And it was just like a gift to me to finally hear that, like, oh, Dad, yay. And so, um, so yeah, and that might be something we need to keep in mind, too, if we have someone that says, yeah, I'm going through the motions, but I don't feel different. Well, have they done that? Have they believed in their heart and confessed with their mouth and maybe lead them right there in an out loud prayer? I don't know. That's what it was for my dad. That's what he was missing. And I'm just thankful that the Lord spoke that to him, and he, he's, he's a different man, and it's beautiful. All right. So praise God for his finishing work in my dad. And just praying for him. I mean, that's kind of where we were. I was like, Kiana, don't say those things to Grandpa. Let's just pray for him, you know. But I don't know. Her heart was just like that. And she's still kind of like that sometimes. Um, So let's take note here. Um, Paul's not telling us to believe in our minds, but in our hearts. And why is that? Maybe because God wants our hearts first. Mark 12, 30, you shall love the Lord with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Our minds can be swayed very easily, especially women. We tend to flip-flop pretty easily from one thing to the next. But our hearts, that's a little bit different. Our hearts don't change so easily. We can probably all remember a heartbreak from the past. I mean, we just kind of remember those things. Our hearts break, but they don't easily change. And so God tells us to believe in him with our hearts, not simply rationally, but emotionally and intimately as well. Confess with our mouth. Confession has the idea of agreeing with. When we confess the Lord Jesus, we agree with what God said about Jesus and with what Jesus said about himself. It means we recognize that Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah, and that his work on the cross is the only way of salvation for mankind. Verse 11, For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul is quoting from Joel 2.32, proving that salvation is for everyone. Paul had already declared that there was no difference in condemnation in Romans 3.20-23. Now he's telling them there's no difference in salvation either. Instead of the Jew having a special righteousness through the law, he was declared to be as much a sinner as the Gentile that he condemned. This can get a little confusing as we studied in chapter 9, verse 13. 
God saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And now here in chapter 10, it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It seems to be a little bit of a contradiction. This week, I was listening to Bible teachings from Pastor Chuck Smith that my daughter obtained while she was at um, Bible college. And as Chuck's talking about this, he said it very much bothered him for a little while. He just tried to wrestle with this and rectify it in his mind. I don't understand. It's either you predestined or all, all can be saved. Which is it? And he said as he was kind of getting frustrated about that, he just felt like the Lord told him, you don't need to rectify it or understand it. You just need to trust and believe me. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to go with that. That... um Sorry, I don't want to back up and get myself confused. Okay, moving forward. Verse 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. How shall they hear without a preacher? Paul rightly observes that it all goes back to the preaching of the gospel and that preachers need to be sent both by God and by the Christian community. How shall they hear without a preacher? Conceivably, God could have chosen any means for the message of salvation to come, such as angelic messengers or directly working with a human preacher. But nevertheless, God's normal way of bringing people to Jesus is through the preaching of the gospel. No wonder those who preach the gospel of peace have beautiful feet. They partner with God for the salvation of men. The feet speak of activity, motion, and progress. And those who are active and moving in the work of preaching the gospel have beautiful feet. This just made me think that we all have a part to play. Um, Yes, the Lord divinely inspires um, those to be preachers. But I think God wants to use each one of us as well in in the lives of those people that we come in contact with. Maybe those people aren't going to hear the message I believe that God is calling us to live authentically. As parents, we need to make sure we bring our children so they can hear those preachers. And then we need to live a life that lines up with our belief, lest it it all seem meaningless to our children. We might have people in our neighborhoods that the only way they know the love of God is the love that we pour out on them, and then that leads them to the Lord in his timing. If you want to have... Beautiful, lively feet. You need to share the gospel, live out its truth, bring tidings of good things. When I think of someone with beautiful feet, I think of my grandmother. She was never a preacher, never preached the gospel, never spoke any scripture, but she lived a life of love. I think she had each one of us grandchildren live with her at some point or another. My grandmother sacrificed so that I could go to Christian camp as a teenager And that's where I was saved. So maybe she didn't have the gift to teach what I needed to hear, but she made the sacrifice to get me to that camp so I could hear the preacher, so my life could be changed. And to me, she's the most beautiful person I know. I mean, she's in heaven now, but she was beautiful because she brought me to my Savior. She basically gave me the keys to heaven. Aside from what Jesus did on the cross, I wouldn't have known about it if it weren't for my grandmother. And so um, we can all have beautiful feet by loving on the people in our lives and leading them to Jesus and reflecting him to them. Okay, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed your report? Isaiah correctly prophesied that not all who hear would believe. 
How about that unsafe friend that we bring to a harvest crusade? Sometimes the message catches and they walk up front and we get to go with them and celebrate. But sometimes they just hear it and they're not even changed and we don't understand that. And so Paul is saying that not everybody who hears is going to believe. Verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In verse 18, Paul is making it clear that Israel has indeed heard. In case they weren't, you know, in case anyone asked, how do you know that Israel heard? His reply would have been Psalm 19.4, a psalm that emphasizes the revelation of God in the world. God reveals himself in creation and in his word. The book of nature and the book of revelation go together and proclaim the glory of God. Israel had the benefit of both books, for she saw God at work in nature and she received God's written word. Israel heard, but she would not heed. No wonder Jesus often had to say to the crowds, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. When Israel rejected her Messiah, God sent the gospel to the Gentiles that they might be saved. This was predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 32:21. Paul had mentioned this truth before in Romans. One reason that God sent the gospel to the Gentiles was that they might provoke the Jews to jealousy. It was an act both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Um, and the prophet Isaiah predicted, too, that God would save the Gentiles. All day long, I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary nation, a contrary people. We are now that foolish nation. Will we accept Christ as our salvation? Some will hear and listen, and some will not. And God is still stretching out his hand to us, in the form of Jesus, and his arms are laid out on the cross for us. Will we accept Jesus Christ as our Messiah? I have a little um, devotion that I'm going to wrap up with. <clears throat> this is in a little book by Max Licato in his um, teaching on Romans. And it's from um, Peace with God with Billy Graham. The Bible teaches that God was a God of love. He wanted to do something for man. He wanted to save them. He wanted to free man from the curse of sin. How could he do it? God was a just God. He was a righteous and holy God. He had warned man from the beginning that if he obeyed the devil and disobeyed God, he would die physically and spiritually. All through the Old Testament, God gave man the promise of salvation if by faith he would believe in the coming Redeemer. Therefore, God began to teach his people that man could only be saved by substitution. Someone else would have to pay the bill for man's redemption. Thanks be to God, that's exactly what happened. Looking down over the battlements of heaven, he saw this planet swinging in space, doomed, damned, crushed, and bound for hell. He saw you and he saw me struggling beneath our load of sin and bound in the chains and ropes of that sin. He made his decision in the council halls of God, the angelic host bowed in humility and awe as heaven's prince of peace and lord of lords who could speak worlds into space got in his jeweled chariot, went through the pearly gates across the steep of the skies and on a black Judean night while the stars sang together and the escorting angels chanted praises, stepped out of the chariot, threw off his robes and became man. <laughs>